My name is Haido, and it's my privilege today to introduce our guest speaker. He's one of our own, Will Jones. Um, I believe it's his first time teaching on Sunday, so that's fun. And if you know Will, you know he's thoughtful, you know he's well-spoken, and most importantly, he loves Jesus. So I'm excited about, uh, about him teaching today. So please join me in welcoming Will Jones. Thanks. I'm Will. Um, I'm a partner here uh, at the bridge. I, uh, um, I serve on the lyrics team in the back there, usually on Sundays behind the curtain. Uh, I also lead a small group um, that's the Heights Wednesday group. So if you live in the Heights and you would like a small group, there is one that meets on Wednesday. Um, so yeah, if I told you that I was not nervous right now, I would be lying. Um, I, this is the first time I've ever taught on a Sunday morning, um, and it is very nerve-wracking. I wasn't nervous 30 minutes ago, now I'm very nervous, and I just started my timer. So uh, today we're going we're gonna to read Romans 15, 8 through 13. So if you have a Bible with you, um, you can turn there. There's a Bible under your chairs, um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can take that one with you. Uh, six out of seven days, they spend most of their time in a crate, and so um, it'd be better if you had it. Um, <clears throat> so I would, to start, like for us all to think about someone we trust, just personally, just think about somebody, maybe a parent or a spouse or family member. Um, you, you could abstract, think of maybe an institution or whatever, just somebody you trust. And then um, think about what hope you have in that person. So here's an everyday example, because uh, I think that we trust and hope in things every day. Uh, last week, around this time, I was on a plane coming home from Detroit, where it was very cold. And I never, I always had hope that I was going to make it to Houston. The same thing when I was flying to Detroit, I had hope that I would land in Detroit. Um, and that's because I trusted a lot of things, a lot of people and things along the way, right? I trusted the pilot, that he was qualified. I trusted the airline company, that they hired qualified pilots. I trusted the plane manufacturer because they, um, that they were manufacturing safe planes. I trusted a lot of things. And my hope of a safe arrival at my destination was completely built on this trust, right? So. Hope and trust are connected. Um, and it's especially true if we think about hope as this feeling of, or a feeling of expectation, especially for a certain thing to happen, right? And oftentimes, whenever we trust, we have reason to, right? My trust in arriving at my destination, um, you know, when I was on my plane was because of just our life, air, air travel's pretty safe, right? Uh, contra example, we grounded um, the 737 MAX airplanes, right? The Boeing airplanes, because we don't trust them anymore. So now that we see that hope and trust are connected, I want us to think about our relationship with God. And I want to ask three questions that I hope you guys will ask yourselves. Um, do you have hope in God? Do you trust God? And then the third question, which is always the kicker, why or why not? And so today, 
Paul is going to show us through Romans that we're going we're gonna to go over, that God keeps his promises. We can trust him. And because we can trust him, we can hope in him. So if you guys would pray with me, uh, we will get started afterwards, okay? Uh, God, thank you for this church, this congregation, for all the people in it. Uh, you are a wonderful, awesome, glorious God, and we love you. God, just, just speak through me. Um, just, uh, just speak through me. Catch my words aflame and use the Holy Spirit in all of us and in me to just do amazing things. Um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for truth. Thank you for all the, the um, things that you have done for us and through us and are doing uh, right now. Thank you for promises. Thank you for being a true God. <sighs> yeah, we love you. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, re- let's read Romans 15, 8 through 13 uh, in full. So here's what it says. For I tell you that Christ became a, ser- a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Yeah, so what I just read is a translation of a text that's thousands of years old. Isn't that so cool? I, so I love history. That's, that's actually, that's my job. I'm a historian. Um, and that just amazes me. Uh, Paul wrote it. And he didn't write to us. He wrote it, he wrote it to um, Christians, Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. I wish he wrote it to us because that would make my job a lot easier because I could just read the letter, right? Um, <clears throat> the thing to remember about the people that he wrote it to, the Christians in the church in Rome, is that they were fraught with division. If you've been here the past few weeks, Uh, We've been going over Romans. We're actually nearing the end of Romans now. Um, You probably know the two groups. And if we had a quiz at the end of this sermon series on Romans, this would be like question four. Like, what are the two groups in the church in Rome? And we would write down the answer, and we would say Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Right? And so when we think Jewish Christians, these are the people of Israel, the chosen people of God who... um, heard about Jesus, the Messiah, and who said, yes, that's true, right? And they became Christians. Gentile Christians, these are non-Jews. These are people who were not part of the historic um, people of Israel. In the Old Testament, we're going to be in the Old Testament a lot today. Um, in the Old Testament, they're referred to oftentimes as Greeks or foreigners or the nations. So in some of the things that we'll read today, when you see those words, think Gentiles. And in this church in Rome, the law was the major point of contention with them, 
right? And so when I say the law, that's the, the rules, the stipulations that God gave the people of Israel um, for their good, and it included all sorts of things. I mean, it included everything from the, the um, law regarding circumcision, right? And it also included things on what to eat, what not to eat. It was very comprehensive. And the uh, major point of contention what, with this group, this, this church in Rome was, how do we live as Christians? And where is the law in our life as Christians? And this was a big point of contention because a lot of the Jewish Christians at the time were saying the, the law, we're requiring the law for salvation, right? So not just um, salvation through grace by faith in Christ, but also the law. <clears throat> so in chapter 14, which is before our chapter, he's telling this church how to deal with these very real issues in their church, different opinions about Christian life. Um, if you miss those passages, you can go back and listen to Heath talk about them. Um, then in the beginning of chapter 15, that's what we heard last week, Paul tells the Jewish and Gentile Christians about endurance and encouragement and harmony and how they all come from God through the Holy Spirit who can only do works in our lives because of Jesus. And verse 7 of chapter 15 sums up that section immediately preceding ours and connects our text today to the rest of the book. So I'm actually going to read verse 7. Um, and here's what it says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that's his point in the section immediately preceding ours. And this is where I'd like to pioneer a biblical reading strategy. It's called the Cuz Why strategy. This comes from a uh, little boy that Cammie and I, my wife, that we babysit. His name's John, and he's three. And when you tell him something or explain something to him, his immediate uh, response is, because why? Right? It doesn't matter. And if you fall into his game, he just, he, it just keeps going. It, just, it doesn't matter what you say. Every answer you give, he's got another, because why? And then again, because why? Right? We can do the same thing when we're reading Scripture. Paul writes in a way that answers all of our cause why questions. One of the reasons this works as a reading strategy is because when it comes to scripture and when it comes to studying scripture, we're very much inquisitive children, right? Like John, seeking to understand and to know who God is, who we are, and what this world is that God created. So let's reread verse seven and then immediately, ask, immediately after ask cause why. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because why? Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So there's another way of putting this. We can paraphrase verses 8 and 9 to make sense of it. Um, so let's Put it all together with verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because why? Well, because Jesus, the Messiah, obliterated divisions between Jews and Gentiles, just like God promised. So to the Jews and his audience in Rome, Paul saying, hey, Gentiles were always part of God's redeeming plan for the world, going back to Abraham. That's what he means when he says, the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham. To the Gentiles, he's saying, you were always part of God's plan going back to Abraham. 
So to everyone in this church, in his immediate audience, he's saying, you, the Roman church, Jews and Greeks, you're evidence of God's fulfilled, that God has fulfilled his messianic promise. Verses 8 and 9 are the introduction, his sort of thesis statement to this small section of Romans. They introduce his broader argument, right, that God keeps his promises, and a God who keeps his promises is one who we can trust, and a God we can trust is a God we can hope in. So verses 8 and 9 are very important. Let's look at them very closely, again, using the cuz why strategy. It's a very important, very useful strategy. Um, so, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And when he says circumcised, he means Jews. Because why? To show God's truthfulness. Because why? Well, for two reasons. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He's going back to Genesis here when he's referencing the patriarchs. And, second reason, that the Gentiles might glorify God. Why might the Gentiles glorify God? For his mercy. God gave promises to the Jewish people going back all the way to the first Jew, Abraham, that he would send a Messiah to redeem the world from sin. Jesus was that Messiah, and he died fulfilling this promise. His death opened the door for non-Jews to receive the mercies of God. That is to say, be saved from his final judgment for sin. So I know what you're thinking. That's a really radical argument, Paul. You can't just say something like that without proof, right? This is, how do we know? How do I know where pro- uh, that promises about Messiah and Gentiles were given to the patriarchs? How do I know Gentiles are part of his messianic plan, right? This is, I mean, if I just threw out a radical argument to you right now, say that the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles are the, be- are the best football team in the history of the NFL, you would think, that's a radical argument. I can't just accept that. And so then I, you would need evidence. And so then I'd give you evidence. I'd say our starting quarterback and our starting left tackle and our starting middle linebacker all got injured and we still beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. And then you would say, yeah, that's right. That's a very convincing argument. And then you and I would, <laughs> you, we would hang out at Lady Burt's on Sunday afternoons, which is the Eagles bar, and we would just chant the Eagles fight song like till our voices are hoarse. So Paul does something similar here. He gives us evidence for his radical argument. That's what verses 9 and 12 are. And he just fires them at you with no reference to where they're coming from. I mean, he just says, and again it says, and again it says, and again it says, right? So when you're, uh, when you're reading this, you're just like overwhelmed. And again it says, what is this? Uh, this is when in your personal Bible study, when you're reading Romans uh, 15, 8 through 13, this is when you take out your trusty study Bible or your trusted commentary, and you're like, oh, okay, verse 9, and again, and it says here, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, and then there's a little note, and it goes down, and it says, Second Samuel 22.50, you're like, ah, I guess I ought to read that, so you go to Second Samuel 22.50, and turns out, and you just spend maybe a week reading Second Samuel 22, or maybe the whole book of Second Samuel, um, and you're like, ah, Second Samuel, this is, this is all about David. Actually, Second Samuel 22.50 is David's song of victory, commemorating how God delivered him from his enemies. That includes the Philistines. That includes Saul. 
it's a summary of what God has done through David. And these verses come at the end of this song. And in this song, David talks about foreigners. Remember I said foreigners means Gentiles. Coming to David. Second, uh, 22, 2 Samuel 22, 45. He says, foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. So in his argument that God always meant to include Gentiles in his redemptive story, Paul goes to David, God's chosen king, and says, look, David's kingship was meant to bless both Jew and Gentile alike. So you're like, okay. So now you spend a week in 2 Samuel. So then you go to verse 10. Uh, here goes Paul again. And again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And it's quote. And so then you go back to your study Bible, and you, there's a little footnote there, and it says, uh, Deuteronomy 32.43. You're like, oh, man. I just spent a week in 2 Samuel. Now I got to go to Deuteronomy, read, the, read Deuteronomy to figure out what's happening here. Deuteronomy, you learn as you're reading it, is the final book of the Pentateuch. Right? The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. It's the Torah. The, thing, the, the, the narrative historical events happening in Deuteronomy uh, happen after the Israelite exodus from Egypt, but before their arrival at the Promised Land. We have a restatement in Deuteronomy of God's covenant with the Jewish people, also a restatement of the law. Deuteronomy is also where the uh, book in which Moses dies and so you're reading it, right before Moses dies, he has this song. And God tells him in Deuteronomy 31, 19, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And in that song is the quote that Paul puts into Romans. Rejoice, O Gentiles with his people. So even in this song, which God commanded Moses to teach to the people of Israel as a witness for God against Israel, even that mentions Gentiles, right? So Paul's really getting here. The Gentiles are always part of God's plan. The, a sort of contemporary illustration here um, is sort of like marriage, right? So, so uh, in marriage, a husband and a wife create a covenant together and with God, and uh, we believe that when they do that, they create a new family, right? They leave their families and they create a new family in this covenantal relationship, just like the Jewish people were in a covenantal relationship with God. But oftentimes, though not, not always, but oftentimes part of that covenantal relation, that new family, um, the husband and wife never mean for it to just remain husband and wife. Oftentimes they're going to add new people to the family, right? Their children, so we have a similar thing here. God created a covenantal relationship with the people of Israel with the idea of adding new people to that covenantal relationship. So to demonstrate God's, that God keeps his promises and always meant to include Gentiles in his redeeming work, Paul cites scripture from David and Moses. Right? So the man who slew Goliath and the man who parted the Red Sea, God's king and God's prophet, you can't get, I mean, you can't get better examples here for a Jewish audience. These are well-known, famous people, and the Jewish people in his church 
uh, would have either known these scriptures, which is why Paul doesn't necessarily cite them, right? And they would have known these people, and this would have been a very powerful argument. And so then you've spent some time in Second Samuel, and you spent some time in Deuteronomy, you're like, finally. I thought I was reading New Testament here, and now I've had to spend two weeks in the Old Testament. So you get to verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Uh, Paul's quoting something here again. So you go to your, your, your study Bible. Turns out it's Psalm 117. 117.1. And the Psalms, right, these, were, these, were, these are songs. They're written to be sung, right, often in a congregational setting. And when correct, uh, collected in the form that we have them now, they're organized into five books. It sort of mirrors the, the Torah. And Psalm 117 is part of this final section, this final grouping of the Psalms, that all the Psalms in this section look forward to a future that God has planned for his people and look forward to a messianic king. And those, not coincidentally, are the Psalms that are oftentimes quoted in the New Testament and that um, we think probably early Christian churches would have known well. So this Psalm is very short. It's worth quoting in full. So in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And I know what you're thinking. Can we use the cuz why strategy to understand what's going on in this psalm? And we can, right? Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Cuz why? For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. See, Paul here makes a transition in verse 11 from demonstrating to us that God had always meant, had always planned and meant to include non-Jews in the work of salvation to connecting God's plan for the Gentiles to his love and faithfulness. We're starting to see what what, what Paul is doing here, what God is doing through Paul. Um, David and Moses tell us that God planned from the beginning to save all humanity, Jew and non-Jew, people of Israel and Gentiles. And then the psalmist tells us that God's love and faithfulness are unwavering and infinite. He's about to round home, Paul is, with his final Old, Old Testament reference to the book of Isaiah. And this is your fourth week in your study of Romans, where you're not actually reading Romans, you end up reading an Old Testament book. Um, And in both both of these concepts that Paul has shown us from the Old Testament, God's plan for the Gentiles and his love and faithfulness, they're encapsulated and embodied in the Messiah, in Jesus. And that's where Paul leads us to in verse 12 of Romans 15. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah is this amazing vision of hope and future uh, for a kingdom through the coming Messiah. It's the final, speaks of the final redemption of Israel and all people on a new heaven and a new earth. Um, Just as a little factoid, Isaiah is cited or alluded to more often than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament, except for the Psalms. And in Isaiah, Isaiah explicitly states that divisions between Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, will be gone after the Messiah. 
And when Paul is, re- you know, is reading Isaiah or has Isaiah memorized in his mind, he's writing this letter to the Romans, he quotes the ending statement or the concluding remark in this section. And sort of the summary point. So this would be the natural thing to quote. And in this concluding statement, it has a specific prophecy regarding Jesus, the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse is a reference to the line of David, and that is the line that Jesus came from. And so in verse 12 here, Paul makes a transition in this passage from giving us evidence that God keeps his promises, right, which included saving Gentiles through Messiah to exhorting us to be filled with hope which is what he gets to in verse 13, which we'll get to in a second. So what is the full effect of these quotations from the Old Testament? If you've spent your month studying Samuel and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah, what's the full effect? Well, the immediate immediate effect to his immediate audience, the people he was writing to, is to show the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome that Gentiles were always part of God's plan. Gentiles were always going to be a part, uh, always going to be a part of uh, the people of God. The long-awaited time for Jews and Gentiles worshiping the same God together has arrived. This is embodied in the Roman church. The bigger vision here, the one that transcends time, is that God made promises to include Gentiles in his plan, and he fulfilled them. He sent a Messiah, his son Jesus, who took on the sin of all humanity on the cross and who made a way for anyone who would believe in him to conquer death and sin and to have perfect unity with God. Paul is saying this happened, and because this happened, we can trust God. And because we can trust God, we can have hope in him. This is why Paul ends this section with an exhortation to abound in hope in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And this is crucial for Christians, those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, living then and today, because Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, made promises to us, promises that some of them have come true, some of them are coming true, and some of them we're still waiting to come true. So Jesus gave us some promises for the present. In Luke 17, 20 through 21, uh, It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some of the promises have to do with how we act. I think about the Beatitudes here. Matthew, for example, Matthew 5, uh, 4 through 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a promise from Jesus. John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, quote, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a promise. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, John 14 through 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's a promise that we know happened because it's, really, it's, uh, it's written down in Acts. Some of the promises have to do with uh, who we are. Matthew 5, uh, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's a promise. 
Finally, Jesus gave us promises about the future. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. And all these promises that Jesus gives to those who believe in him were rooted in a promise that he told us about himself. John 8, 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus has promised those who follow him that he is the Messiah, who God said he would would save the whole world, that believing in Jesus guarantees us salvation, it's freedom from victory over death and sin, that he sent a helper, the Holy Spirit, to literally dwell inside us, transform our lives, to look more like Jesus's, and that there's a kingdom prepared for us where we will live with Jesus in perfect restored communion with God when Jesus returns. These are the things that Jesus promised us, and because he promised them to us, we can have hope that they are are true, they will come true, because we trust God. And we can trust God because, as Paul has shown us here in Romans, he has delivered on his promises before. And all these promises are open to anyone who believes in Jesus. And if that's not you, and if these promises are attractive to you, if you say, want to be the light of the world, or if it's attractive to be set free by truth, or inherit a kingdom God has made for you, be victorious over death, those promises are free and open to you. All it costs is your life. As Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's true his burden is light, but it doesn't always feel that way. Um, Daily life with God gets hard, right? And oftentimes when our lives are not being transformed in the way we want them to be, or as fast as we'd like them to change, it's common and very understandable to doubt, right? Because when we doubt, we start to lose trust. And when we lose trust, we start to lose hope. I don't, I don't know your heart. Maybe that's where you're at right now. Um, I've, have, I've had moments where that has happened to me, right? Uh, I have... Uh, I, I'm a graduate student, a PhD student at Rice, and I thought, still think, that God put me in this place for many years. <laughs> um, that was a graduate student. That's a graduate student joke. For for many many years, uh, to be the light of truth and God in that place, right? To make disciples there, and I have tried for a long time for like two or three years, and it's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, I have taken hours out of my days to meet with people, to pray with people, to read scripture with people, really gotten to know people, and then sometimes you're just like, ah, let's plan a meetup at this time and this day, and it's Cammie and I are the only people there, and nobody even responded, you know? When that stuff happens, man, it gets hard to 
still have hope. So, I have found that we are forgetful people. So when I go through those seasons of doubt, of losing trust and losing hope, I found two things that are really important. Uh, read scripture, especially with God's grand plan in mind for salvation. And that's, that's what Paul gives us here. That's what Paul does, right? He gives us God's plan over millennia and shows us how God has been faithful and how his plan has come true. The other one is just your personal story, our personal stories, our testimonies of how God took us from, from death to life, right? I forget that. It wasn't even that long ago, and I still forget. Those of us who are Christ followers live every week, every day, every hour with promises from God. And as Paul's shown us, God keeps his promises. We can trust him. We can hope in him. Guys, the God of the universe made promises to you, and he's going to keep them. I hope that fills you with this incomprehensible joy and peace. My hope for you is that, you're gonna, that you will enter this week with that joy and peace found in God so that you can just be overflowing with hope and take the message of hope the message of the gospel wherever you go. So will you pray with me and then we can go and take communion as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you for your promises. Thank you for always coming true. Thank you for always, um, thank you for being a God that we can hope in. God, I confess that it is hard every day to remember how true you are, to remember all the promises that you have fulfilled, I confess that I am forgetful. God, I pray that when those seasons happen, that we return to your word, that we surround ourselves with fellow believers. And God, I pray for our world, for those of us around us who don't yet know you. I pray for them that we would be a light to them, that we would come showing, being just bearers of hope for the world. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.